better place to start to begin than the beginning. And so I'll have a, uh, I get Genesis chapter 3, 1 to 15. You can follow along in your Bible, or you can just listen as I read and we'll begin. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You, won't, you surely won't die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like gods, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sold, sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me. And I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is a very well-known chapter it speaks of the fall in the beginning god made everything good and he made it well it was as he intended and then when we come to chapter three of the torah we read that not everything went so well and we see uh, an act of rebellion an act of rebellion on the serpent's part and then on the part of original humankind and i want to zoom in on what's what's been called the a fancy word for it is the Proto-Evangelium, Genesis 3, verse 15. And that's just a really fancy way of saying a very simple thing, that it's the first announcement of the gospel, of, of a hope, of a victory over sin and over the activity of this original serpent. And I want to zoom in on it and talk a little bit about it, because I want to ask, what is it? A lot of times we read Genesis 3.15 and then we go, that's about Jesus, and then we, our thoughts jump immediately to Jesus, and we skip a lot of history, and we skip a lot of things. And so what is really going on here? Well, God says, I will put enmity between you and the serpent, right? Between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And really, this is the equivalent of God saying, this means war. This means war. This was the first time in Scripture where a rebellion caused a moment of war, and it's God himself who says, this war is going to begin now, and it's going to begin in this way. And literally, it, it means that he will put. And so God causes this. He declares this. And it's war between the race of humankind that he's made 
and this enigmatic figure that we learn about who's called the serpent. And this war plays out through the whole of the Old Testament, long before we get to Jesus. This is a long war, and this war is going on between the evil and the good, those who come from the woman and those who come from the serpent, those who remain loyal to the true God and those who desert him. And all throughout this history, there's a number of victors and saviors. Not just, we don't have to wait for victors and saviors before we get to Jesus Christ. There's many. There's Noah. There's Abraham. There's Moses. There's Joshua. The judges that God raises up, David, and the leaders that return Israel into exile. These are all men who stand up and resist the temptation of the serpent. They resist the temptation of the enemy. They say, no, I will not worship and follow created things. And that's what the serpent is. We read that in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. If he was anything at all, if he was an angel, if he was a mighty being of power, if he was just a snake, whatever the case is, he was created. He was a created thing and not to be worshipped and followed and honored. Noah resisted the primeval wickedness of his time. Abraham resisted the gods of the Canaanites. Moses said no to the gods of Egypt, and God defeated those gods in ancient times. Joshua told the people, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of the Amorites or the Canaanites, but as for me and my house, I'm going to serve the God of Israel. And so there's been many victors and many saviors, lowercase v, lowercase s, as God's history has moved on through, and this war has played itself out until we get to Jesus. And he is, of course, our final victor. But one of the things that this does for us, Genesis 3.15, is it doesn't just help us know what comes in between that statement, that declaration of war and Jesus Christ. It actually informs our entire passage, so I just want to share a little bit of that with you. So this was a rebellion, and then war was declared. And if we read this passage with a sort of war perspective, it helps illuminate it a little bit, because we're told that the serpent was more crafty. Whether by membership or permission, he is in the garden, and he's familiar with it, right? He can tell these people, look, if you follow me, you'll gain knowledge of good and evil. So he's kind of on this mission of espionage. He's spying out this new human creation, and not for good. It's for rebellion. And he tells them in verse 5, if you take this fruit, God knows that you will learn of good and evil. So he says, I've got enemy intel that I can give to you. You can be in the know. You can know things that you don't know, those things that you need to know in order to succeed in this battle. And he goes on. In verse 7, it says that then the eyes of both of them were open when they took the fruit, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So they got new uniforms. <laughs> they, they, they changed sides here. They, they, have, they have gone uh, with the enemy. They've got new uniforms, and now it's a banner of shame, and it's a banner of guilt. And then they hid themselves in verse 8. They found themselves behind enemy lines because they had deserted their Lord, their master. And now they were not in the right spot. They knew that they were enemies. And they hid themselves. They were afraid of his voice. In verse 11, God said, Did you eat from that tree that I commanded you not to? Right? They disobeyed direct orders. And so this is war. And they rebelled. And I want to point something out because this isn't in our passage, but I have to point it out. And you're thinking, I didn't come to a Christmas Eve thing to hear about war. This is just said, <laughs> I want to hear about nice fluffy stuff. But 
But look what happens once this war is engaged. In verse 21, it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And so he curses the woman, the man, and the serpent. He declares this perpetual war between the serpent and the woman's offspring. But the first act of this God who has declared war is to re-enlist them. It's to show them mercy and to clothe them to give them a new uniform, and to say, I want you back. I want to re-enlist you. Fight for me. Be with me in the, the original way that I made you. It's one of mercy. And I just want to share um, this fancy old poet named John Milton in his book, Paradise Lost. He has a beautiful way of saying this, and then I'll end. He describes the moment that God comes to judge Adam and Eve once they've taken the fruit, and says this, so judged he man, both judge and savior sent. And the instant stroke of death denounced that day, removed far off, then pitying how they stood before him naked to the air, that now must suffer change, disdained not to begin, thenceforth the form of servant to assume. And when he washed his servant's feet, so now as the father of his family, he clad their nakedness with skins of beasts or slain, or as the snake with youthful cobra paid, and though not much to clothe his enemies, nor he their outward only with the skins of peace, but inward nakedness, much more appropriate with robe of righteousness, arrayed, covered from his father's sight. And so this war began, but it's interesting to see how our God begins to fight this war with acts of mercy and by bringing us back under his banner. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you. We know that we are in the same position as our original parents. We have rebelled. We have not listened to your voice. We have hid ourselves. We have sinned before you. And oh Lord, we're sorry. And this Christmas season, we rejoice to see that in this war, you could have sent us away without hope, and yet you called us back. You re-enlisted us. You gave us something to wear, and you gave us food to eat from your very table through our Lord Jesus. And in his name we pray, amen. All right, moving forward, let's turn our attention to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. If you have your Bible, read along with me. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is a prophetic message of hope for God's people through the victory of God. This is a nation that is struggling. They are in decline. They have enemy Assyrians all throughout their land. And this is a people that is distant from God. This picture of the trials around them reflects the internal conflict in their hearts and in ours. Just as we heard about in the garden, God's people here still would not listen to his word. They were looking around everywhere except to God for answers and for hope. And it's in the midst of this darkness that Isaiah the prophet speaks of the coming light and peace and redemption for his people. In fact, I just want to bring our attention to verse 6, because in just a few words here, we actually have a whole history of redemption, a whole narrative of Scripture, and indeed the gospel preached in just a few words, that even in their brokenness, he gives us this prophecy of his great love, forgiveness, and redemption. So let's remember these words. Unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. First, we see God's redemptive action. This is a promise for us, for his sinful and rebellious people. God was not content to let his people continue to wander around in the darkness. In fact, left to ourselves, we'd still be lost, afraid, bumping into things, and looking for answers and redemption in all the wrong places. But in his great love, he promises to continue to pursue us and give us light in our darkness. He promises to redeem his people to himself. Second, we see God's grace at work. His people didn't do anything to deserve this redemption. The passage doesn't read, unto us a, a son is earned. It says, unto us a son is given. And we, like Israel, cry out in the midst of our own darkness looking for answers and looking for hope, powerless to do anything ourselves, God gives us the greatest gift of all. We're told later in Scripture in Romans that it's while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. And third, we see the tremendous extent of, of God's love. For a holy God to bring a sinful people back unto himself, they too would have to be made holy. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, well, how is that? possible. Unto us a son is given. This isn't just any son. This is the Father's perfect son, Jesus, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And because of his holiness extended to us through Jesus, God's people would have fellowship and reunion with him. Israel would cling to this promise of hope, and tonight we celebrate the fulfillment of that hope in God's son, Jesus. His people can take comfort that even in the midst of tremendous darkness, God has given us the light of the world. In the midst of confusion and despair, we have a wonderful counselor. When we face anxiety, we are fatigued, we have an almighty God. And when we are afraid, we have the Prince of Peace. Yet this peace comes only through victory. We tend to forget sometimes, at least I do, that this is a, ultimately a passage of triumph. 
Light will always overcome darkness, and God ultimately wins the victory over sin and everything that terrorizes us, and he does so in the most unlikely of ways, through a child. And so tonight we celebrate this promised child, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who has come and will come again and eradicate evil forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the promise given to your people. We thank you that that continues to this day and that you are faithful to always fulfill your promises. And so we rest in that, we celebrate that, and we give praise to Jesus tonight. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Our third reading about the coming of the Christ is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And there were in the same region shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were greatly afraid. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, the Christmas carol we just sang is a great introduction to this picture of the coming of Christ of the promise and prophecy, because it's all about glory to God in heaven, angels announcing something, and joy. Sort of the earth-shattering event, literally, heaven-shattering earth to come down, that this passage is about. Uh, all about the greatness of God's kingdom coming from one end to the other. But it's interesting, this passage in Luke 2, which is familiar to all of us, uh, is marked by small things, too. Caesar, on high, makes a decree, and people all around the empire move around. But Luke says, it's just two people. Poor Jewish carpenter, young Jewish girl that he focuses on. A whole empire moves at the whim of one person's decision. Some things don't change. It sets in motion the fulfillment of all of God's promises that we've just heard about. In the movement of one man and one woman. And in one sense, again, Christmas hasn't really changed in 2,000 years. I often reflect on that. The roads are still packed today. 
People are rushing about. If you drove by the mall recently, it's packed. Nations and empires are still in turmoil, jockeying for political gain. Rulers make decrees. But in the midst of this, God's heavenly kingdom comes. It moves forward. It shatters through the earth. While Caesar was showing his power, counting all of his people, showing how great he was from on high, these are all my people, it was the Lord of the universe showing how great he was by becoming one of his people. Even the humility of God is stronger than the greatest empire on earth. You might remember that it was Rome that said that we have brought peace to the world. Remember the phrase Pax Romana, maybe from your uh, high school days? The peace of Rome. Caesar was often called a savior among men, a lord of people. But it's interesting, all of those phrases are used in this passage to talk about a newborn baby, a savior who is the anointed Lord. It's his coming that brings peace on earth, joy for all people. Uh, we hear that this is a multitude of the heavenly host. I don't think one of the angels was left out. I think they all wanted to be there. An army of angels. Christmas is about heaven invading earth. It's landing in force. Here's heaven announcing the landing party. And who's on the landing party? A baby. Jesus is heaven on earth. Heaven become flesh. So it's fitting that all of heaven surrounds him as he comes and arrives on the earth. The God of heaven comes and heaven comes with him. Remember angels sang at the foundation of the world. Job tells us that. They sang out when the foundation stone of the world was laid at creation. Well, in the manger is the beginning of the new creation, the firstborn of God's new creation. So the angels would come and sing again. This is the renewal of creation itself. God gets the glory, but earth gets peace and joy. Don't be afraid, the angel says. By the way, if you check the angel handbook that they all have, the first thing it says is when announcing things to humans, it says you have to start with, don't be afraid. <laughs> because it's a fearful thing when heaven shows up, when the Lord of the universe is pretty terrifying in himself. He is. He's a consuming fire, a blazing majesty of holiness. But when God wanted to dispel all fear that he comes in peace, he came as a baby. Son of God of humble birth, the song says, beautiful the story, praise his name in all the earth, hail the king of glory. Such a babe in such a place, can he be the savior? Says, ask the saved of all the race, who have found his favor. Luke's telling of this Christmas Day story ends with a message about a sign. You heard that? Uh, you will see a sign, a baby lying in a manger, wrapped in swaddling cloths. Uh, these shepherds probably don't know a ton about babies, but they actually know all about mangers. Manger is a feeding trough. It's a tool of their trade. But the last place they would ever think to find a baby would be in a manger, much less a newborn king. But I think it's a sign for why this king is such a joy for this sinful world. The king in a feeding trough is food to the world. Born in Bethlehem, Bethlehem means the house of bread. He has come for nourishment for this world. He came to offer us himself. He was born in another man's stable. 
He was laid in another someone else's manger belonging to animals. He would preach in another man's boat. He wouldn't own a house. He would ride into Jerusalem on another man's colt. He would eat the Last Supper in another man's upper room. He would die on another man's cross to pay for sins. He would be buried in another man's tomb. He is the ultimate substitute. Many of our nativity scenes have a manger that's a wooden feeding trough, typical of Europe, uh, that there's lots of wood, so our nativity scenes often have a a wood one. But it's interesting that many of the mangers, the feeding troughs in Israel, true even today, are carved out of stone. What happened is is you would carve out the top of the stone so that you could put uh, the food in or water to be placed for the animals. So if you think about that, we have a baby wrapped in clothes lying on a slab of rock. The picture reminds you of anything. Luke is signaling something that he would later tell us at the end of the gospel, that even the shepherds wouldn't have guessed. At the end of this story, this same baby would be a man lying on a slab of stone, wrapped, we're told, in cloths. Same phrase. Lifeless, his body lying on a stone slab. See, this royal son would be the good shepherd who would lay down his life for the sheep, and on the third day rise again to bring peace with God and peace on earth. That's the ultimate sign for us tonight. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace, goodwill to men. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us this sign, a Savior in the manger. God in a feeding trough for us. Help us to feed on you tonight by faith, to be nourished by the gift that is your Son, Jesus Christ. And help us to believe this sign like the shepherds, to rejoice, to make haste to him, and give you the glory that there might be peace on earth. For we pray it in his name. Amen. text comes from the end of the Bible, Revelation 22, the first five verses, that say this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. There's an expression that unfortunately we find to ring true all too often since that initial rebellion that we read about in Genesis. And the expression is this, all good things must come to an end. 
Some of us are probably feeling that now. A number of us have folks visiting from afar and we're dreading the day when we have to say goodbye again. The vacations are over and we won't get to see our loved ones for some time. That's how we feel oftentimes. When something good comes, it just slips away so fast. All good things must come to an end. But actually, as we read through Scripture, we start getting an idea that that's not accurate. We start actually getting an idea that just the opposite is the case. That as we read the Scripture, and as we see what God is doing in His world through His Son, Jesus Christ, we come to this final book, and we realize that it's exactly the opposite. It's not true that all good things must come to an end, but in fact, all bad things must come to an end. And all good things must endure forever. What have we seen in this romp through Scripture, this romp through redemptive history tonight? In Genesis, we find that God created humans to live and to rule and to be under his blessing. But by sinning against the Lord, they lost those three things and inherited instead death and subjugation to the earth rather than dominance over the earth and instead of blessing, cursing. But there was that promise, wasn't there, about the seed of the woman who would crush the enemy's head. And then we saw in Isaiah that that seed would be a son given, a child who is born. But it wouldn't be any child. It would be the child who's called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, a child, a human child, who would be God himself. How, how would that work? And then we come and we get the answer. And we find in the Gospel of Luke some names. We find that 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 woman who would have a seed, who would crush the, the enemy's head, we find that she has a name. She's a young lady named Mary. And that her seed is named Jesus. And we find that, that her seed, her son, is that one promised by Isaiah, who is mighty God, everlasting father, wonderful counselor, prince of peace. He is a child, a human child, who is God at the same time. And then we get to Revelation, the end of the story. And we find here in Revelation that those, those three things that we forfeited in Genesis, we get them all back. And, and the things that we gained that we, we didn't want to have and we, and we don't want to have, we lose them all. They're taken away and they're gone forever. What are those three things? We, we traded life for death. We traded rule for subjugation. We traded blessing for cursing. And then we come to this final text, and we see in here in Revelation a word picture. There are many word pictures in this book of Revelation, and we have a word picture about an angel showing to John this river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, and also on either side of the river, the tree of life. So we have water of life, we have tree of life, and do you remember what happened? Back in Genesis, we didn't read it tonight, but what happened in Genesis, after they rebelled against God, the tree of life was still there, but they were no longer given access to it. On the contrary, there was a barrier put up through which they could not pass. They could not get back to that 
tree of life, but now we have the tree of life, the river flowing through the middle, the river of the water of life, and then we have on either side of the river, we have the tree of life. It's all over the place. And it has fruit, 12 kinds of fruit. It yields its fruit every month. There is life hanging from the branches uh, around this river of life that is flowing through the city. So life instead of death. And it then says, tree, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And it says that no longer will there be anything accursed. Nothing. Nada. Zilch. Nothing accursed anymore. Everything accursed is taken away. And the explanation is, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face. That was always a dangerous prospect, wasn't it? To see God's face. That, that was an impossibility. To see God's face and to survive the experience thereof was an impossibility. But it says here, they will see his face. Something has happened so that they can see his face. And his, his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. Why not? They won't need light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And then what? They will reign forever and ever. Created to reign, created to live, created to be under God's blessing. What do we have restored here? We have all of those things given back to us in Jesus Christ. How did that happen? Well, because of the work of the seed of the woman, the child who was given, the son who was born, that one born in Bethlehem and laid in that manger, because of his work, we get all of this back. Water of life, as it says here, in verse 17 of the same chapter, the water of life free. It says, verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty, come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Why without price? There's no such thing as a free lunch. There's nothing free in this life, is there? Why without price? It's not because it's actually free, but because it's paid for by another. And that's why it's free to us, because it was costly to the Son. You see, the Son paid with his life so that we might receive life free of charge, paid in full. There will be no longer any curse, and there won't be any remnants of the curse. There won't be any effects of the curse. A chapter before, it says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. And it ends this chapter, this section we read. They will reign forever and ever. You see, we wouldn't be surprised if it said, as it says elsewhere, he will reign forever and ever. But it says here, they will reign forever and ever. Restored to what we were designed to be, restored to what we were designed to do. And so, my friends, as you look around this world, as you look inside yourself, and you find remnants of that sin, and that rebellion, and the effects thereof, don't despair. But look to that, that seed of the woman. Look to that, that child who was given, that son who was born. Look to that babe who was born in Bethlehem, who grew up to be. Lord and Savior of all. 
look to him, believe in him, because it's not true that all good things must come to an end. On the contrary, in Jesus Christ, all bad things must come to an end, and all good things must endure forever. Let's pray. Our God, thank you for this, this quick tour through your word, this quick tour, this quick tour reminder for all of us of Jesus, of your, your conquering over sin and over death, your winning of the war that we started and that you finished. Lord, we, we pray that you would, as we go out from this place, give us joy and give us peace knowing that Christ has come, was born, lived, died, rose again, and reigns over the world, and draw us to him once again as we come in faith. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.